0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am your host David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Although I'm about to leave for Washington D.C., where I'll be in a couple of hours. Joining from Washington D.C., we've got Rosa Brooks of Georgetown University. Hi, Rosa. Hi there, David. And Corey Shockey of the American <laughs> Enterprise Institute.
1: Hi, Corey. Hello, my friends.
0: And we have Joe Serrincioni of the Plowshares. Fund. How are you, Joe?
2: I'm just great. Thank you for having me on, Dave.
0: Well, it's always good to have you on. Um, So, you know, I wrote a thing, you know, we all, you know, it's sort of our business, so we write these things. And somebody called me up on Saturday and said, would you write a thing about the National Security Advisor going on television, he went on ABC, and saying there's no real evidence that the Russians are intervening to help Trump, but they probably are intervening to help Putin. Now, you know, the, the head of the FBI had earlier said the Russians were intervening, and a senior official from the uh, Director of National Intelligence had testified to the House that this was happening. And as a result of that testimony, the the um, acting director of the Director of National Intelligence got canned, and a new temporary head got brought in, Richard Grinnell which we discussed a little bit last week, who is wholly unqualified and was basically there to do what Robert O'Neill, the national security advisor had done. And that is to pretend like the news that Trump doesn't like isn't happening. And so I wrote this thing. And basically when looking at the government, you see that at the state department and at the director of national intelligence and at the national security council, and elsewhere in in the White House and in the government, we now have people who are not actually sort of qualified to do their jobs, except by the fact that they would place loyalty to Trump ahead of loyalty to the country or their oath to the Constitution, Um, and simultaneously that people who actually do place their oath first and speak truth to power uh, end up uh, being invited to leave one way or another, whether it's Alexander Vindman, uh, and his brother being escorted out of the NSC, or it's Marie Yovanovitch being forced out, or last week, it's the undersecretary of defense for, uh, policy, John Root, uh, being forced out because he was uncomfortable with the president, uh, withholding military aid to Ukraine, uh, The experts are being shown the door. The deep state is being shown the door. And in fact, one other bit of news from last week um, was a guy who had been in the White House and then fired for doing some nasty stuff and then brought back because they remembered they actually like people who do nasty stuff named Johnny McEntee was hired as the head of White House personnel. And he held a meeting where he brought in people from all the different cabinet agencies and said, my job is to work with you to identify people who are not loyal to the president and escort them to the door, particularly people, you know, who are members of the deep state, which of course brings it all back to us because although we started this with Deep State Radio as a kind of ironic commentary on this silly idea, over time it's become clear that there's another reason for us to be called Deep State Radio and that's just to remind everybody That the people who are accused of being the members of the deep state are career civil servants, military officers, intelligence officers, foreign service officers who have devoted their entire lives to the service of this country selflessly and who are actually the heroes in this story. But they're losing right now. They're losing. And our national security um, leadership structure in this country is gutted and dysfunctional like it has never, ever been. And so I just thought all of you guys are national security experts. We probably should talk about this. Um, let's start with you, Corey. What's 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 your reaction to any or all of that?
1: So I break the problem down into two categories. The first is presidential appointees, and the second is career civil servants. And the president has a right to the political appointees he wants subject to congressional confirmation, excuse me, Senate, subject to Senate confirmation. Um, so uh, it doesn't bother me particularly that the president is uh, staffing some of these positions of people manifestly unsuited either by expertise, temperament, or, um, Any other factor, Uh, Richard Grinnell as the director for national intelligence, for example, strikes me as a ridiculous proposition. And the president is corroding our democratic system by avoiding the confirmation of those officials. He's entitled to any lunatic he wants on the White House staff. That's his prerogative. Everybody else should have to be confirmed. And the president's got something like 19 people who are in acting capacities because uh, he's either skeptical he couldn't get them through confirmation or, or doesn't want to be bothered with these little things like checks and balances. Um, so the White House staff, he can do whatever he wants. And if you don't like lunatics running the White House, vote for someone else in the presidential election uh, and uh, insist to your Congresswomen and men that they should be demanding the right of Congress's prerogative to approve or reject nominees. The third piece of it, which is the career civil servants. Um, it does really worry me that the president is politicizing the Foreign Service, he's politicizing military appointments. And again, he's not the first president to have ever done this, but he is doing it to a degree that is, I think, a danger to the country. Um, And it sets a standard that if normalized, will actually make the United States a much less uh, stable and reliable partner or participant in international activities, because just as, the, as President Trump did with the Iran nuclear agreement, which is withdraw from it because it was only an executive order, Congress didn't, uh, that you will have a seesaw where every administration repudiates the prior one. And I think that's actually, there's so much more continuity than difference in America's interests in the world. And I think the president's not only corroding those that good practice, but he's setting a standard that's going to make the United States a lot more challenged in trying to get done what it wants done in the world.
2: Joe? It's, it's that bad and worse. Um, uh, you know, in some ways, Donald Trump has it, uh, numbed us to his actions with these salami tactics. He, he starts off by appointing some particularly absurd people to cabinet positions like Betsy DeVos as a, a secretary of education or Ben Carson as HUD secretary. People clearly not qualified for the appointments but kind of qualified. And then you reach this point where you have Richard Grinnell who has zero experience in intelligence. Nada has never done this before in his life has very little government experience. I mean, his, his highest ranking position was as a, a flack for John Bolton when he was uh, the ambassador to the UN. And he's known as a, as a hit man, as a, a Twitter troll. This is what he does. This is, th- this is not a person who in any other administration would be seriously considered for an appointment, never would have been ambassador to Germany, for example. Now you put him in charge of 17 intelligence agencies. A- and it's... It, it, we're almost numbed to the to the to how absurd this is, and there's nothing we can do about it, because he was confirmed somewhat controversially as ambassador to Germany. That this that you can't stop him from moving into this acting director of D N of D N I post, where he could be for many months, depending on how Trump games the system. And. Uh, Anyone who's serious about this has now written or spoken out about it, and your excellent article in the Daily Beast is a good example. You also have Jane uh, Harmon, who represented California in the House of Representatives for many years and was a senior intelligence official on this in the New York Times today, just posted, talking about how this appointment and this so-called house clearing, here's here's her quote, could damage our intelligence abilities for at least a generation. Recruitment and retention will, of course, plummet, and those officers and analysts left won't have the mentorship or experience to ensure our assessments are based on truth. And what she's talking about is not just how this demoralizes the services, but how it also means that our allies, who we depend on, Uh, for intelligence under the sort of Five Eyes program, for example, where we share intelligence with five key allies, because no matter how big we are, we can't know everything everywhere, how people will now trust us less as they see the politicalization of the intelligence agencies, as they begin to worry about whether intelligence they share with us will be compromised in some way. And there's very good reason for that. Let me just finish my brief comments with this. One of the things that worried me the most about what Richard Grinnell has done is not just his incompetence and what it says about how little Trump cares about our core national security institutions, but that he is asked to see the raw data underlying the uh, joint intelligence assessment that Russia did interfere, that is sabotage our elections in 2016 and are trying to do it again. He wants to see the raw data. That was a red flag for me for two reasons. One, this is what the George W. Bush administration did with WMD in Iraq. They put Steve Cambone in a senior position in the Department of Defense and he set up a sort of parallel intelligence operation where he too grabbed the raw data and then started cherry picking to find things that supported the case that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction—a case we now know was completely false. But it, so that's one thing that you might start to see now is intelligence statements coming out based on not vetted intelligence, not an assessment, a joint assessment where everything is scrubbed, which is the way we normally have done things. But on on one agency, on one. DNI, is one Richard Grinnell asserting and, and declassifying intelligence that he finds useful. But it also raises this question of sources and methods, because some of the information that leads us to conclude that Russia interfered comes from Russians, comes from people inside Russia who have been telling us this, or comes from techniques that would, if revealed, would allow Vladimir Putin, to shut down those channels. And we have the very real possibility that that information will be revealed, either by Grinnell himself or by passing it to Trump, who then passes it on to the Russians, as he has done previously. And this is the other part of the thing that worries me. We still don't have transparency on Trump's relationships to Putin. He has a two-hour meeting where no one else is involved, where he meets with Putin for two hours and doesn't report on it. So all of this raises grave concerns about Uh, the national security of our country, both in data that might be revealed, compromises with allies who will trust us less, and the destruction of the intelligence uh, agencies and the apparatus
0: that we've established in this country. Well, you're right. That does sound sound worse. And by the way, to amplify it just a little bit. That's not
2: bad.
0: Like it needed amplification. Okay. (laughs) Well, but no, no, but just to take it a step further, you know, when uh, a guy like Robert O'Neill goes on television and says, well, I haven't seen any uh, intelligence that or intelligence analysis that suggests the Russians are intervening again to support Trump um, or uh, or Republicans in the House push back on the intelligence um, or people like Grinnell do what you're saying, it actually doesn't matter what the underlying intelligence is. They're creating countervailing story. Um, which creates confusion and gets picked up by media outlets, and they pick and choose what they want to believe is true. Um, and it, you know, it, it undermines the facts and effectiveness of the intelligence and its political impact. Uh, Rosa, do you want to pick up on what Joe was saying, or, or can I ask you a question to broaden this out?
3: Well, I actually wanted to briefly pick up on something that that you said at the very beginning, David. Then feel free to ask me a different question. Okay. Um, I, in general, I agree with everything Corey and Joe and you have said. The the only really caution that I would make um, um, is I worry a little bit about something that that we've all been doing lately, which is announcing that the you know career civil servants and military folks uh, are all heroes, and I'm not quite willing to go there. You know, just you, you don't get to be a hero because you're just doing your job in a professional manner when people around you are corrupt. That's not quite, you know, and I, I've said this before. I mean, I, I remember during the impeachment process, for instance, um, when we were talking about uh, uh, Vindman and um, uh, Fiona Hill and the various other folks who were coming, who were testifying. I. Um, let's not lionize this too much because most of these people, and there were a few exceptions, you know, they had to be subpoenaed before they would speak out. You know, they weren't, they weren't coming forward saying they weren't whistleblowers. Um, uh, They were people who waited until they risked legal jeopardy, contempt of Congress and possible imprisonment themselves before they decided to speak out. And, and, and I'm not saying that that makes them bad people. It doesn't. I, I have respect for all of them. Um, but I'm not quite I, I, I'm concerned that our rhetoric, because we're so rightly outraged by Donald Trump and the particular type of cronyism and corruption he is practicing, we're we're so appalled by that and the potential consequences that I, I worry that we're sort of lionizing things that I'm not quite sure we should be lionizing. I actually think it's reasonable to say, hey, folks, we expect a little bit more of you than just doing your job and then complying with the subpoena. Uh, we actually think that this is a moment where people should be proactively speaking out about problems, scandals, abuses when they see them not waiting. Um, and, and speaking out may mean that you lose your job. It, it may mean that you resign and speak out, you know, but, but that this is just doing your job is not good enough in times like this. Um, because the large majority of people who are doing their job, uh, you know it still enables a lot of really crappy stuff to happen. Anyway, that's my one statement, and feel free to now change the subject.
0: I won't. I'll come back to you uh, with another, but just to 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 address that point briefly, the I, but I wasn't saying, of course, that everybody who is a career civil servant or foreign service officer or intelligence um professional or military professional was a hero. What I really really was saying was that um, they should not be vilified. You, know, you should not have the head of White House personnel saying, I'm going to root out the deep state, or the president of the United States saying, I'm going to root out the deep state, or we should not use a term like deep state as a pejorative term to suggest that professionals that have devoted their lives to these different pursuits are actually bad because they are professionals who have devoted their lives to these different pursuits, which is the implication there. Your point clearly is a a different one. And Corey, I think, you know, it raises a question that we've brought up before, which is at what point do military officers, cabinet secretaries, principals uh, in different agencies have an obligation to speak out? And I think one of the things that has changed about this discussion is that it's now possible to see, thanks to what Joe describes as the salami-cutting tactics of the Trump administration, that this government is being organized to suppress the truth, to twist the truth, to spin the truth, um, to suppress expertise, to suppress dissent, to suppress independent thinking, to... Negate the impact of all the things that history has shown us are essential to good governance um, and are essential to running a government in a way that's not fundamentally both incompetent or corrupt. so we're we're actually at a different point in this discussion where if you don't speak out, you know that the system is actually going to start producing messages that are uh, dis- deceptive. Or otherwise perverted by a political process, and so you know, what 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 do you, what do you think of the the new obligations of people who are in a position in the government to stand up and 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 challenge this?
1: So I feel uncomfortable with exporting from ourselves onto the shoulders of others the responsibility for keeping our government honest. And I realize that not every average American voter, uh, you know, has seen the raw intelligence on Russian election interference. But I a little bit worry that we are now, as Rosa suggested, beginning to do to everyone who works in public service what we do to the military, which is expect them to be more virtuous than we are, expect them to be... Uh, you know, women riding in on a white horse to save us from stuff. That our responsibility as citizens to remain educated, to vote, to protect uh, civil liberties, to protect our democracy. Um, I I'm I share Rose's discomfort that we are expecting uh, people to act heroically when we've just watched Congress for the 187th time not act heroically. And so it recalls for me a really prescient comment from Andrew Exum during the Iraq surge of 2006, where he complained that any strategy that requires um, enlisted soldiers to be geniuses and act with elegance will be a failing strategy. And I worry if our strategy for retaining democracy in America is expecting every civil servant whose livelihood depends on not being the one who gets rooted out by that White House list um, to be our savior, that that's not a good enough strategy.
0: Well, Joe, what then? (laughs)
2: uh, Let me just deepen this just just for a a second. What you you write about so eloquently in The Daily Beast is that this is not just a matter of seeking revenge on opponents or getting out what he sees as the snakes in the deep state. This is about clearing house to remove obstacles to what he wants to do. Uh, Greg Sargent in the Washington Post is writing about this in exactly the same way that you do, uh, David, that this is a purge to clear uh, people who might stand in his way for his further corrupt purposes, for what he wants to do now. And in some ways, this is what autocratic leaders always do. They always try to bend the bureaucracy to their will, and they conduct these kinds of purges. I mean, the most famous one, is. this is not to compare... Trump to Hitler, but the most famous one is what what Adolf Hitler did in uh, 1934, June 30, 1934, the Night of the Long Knives, where he turned on some of his previous allies, in this case, the SA, Ernst Röhm, and his stormtroopers, and in one night he just eliminated 500 of them, killed them kill them in a night and purged all of those from his apparatus, which then cleared the way for the consolidation of his power into the absolute dictator he then became. And you see Trump doing that in sort of a modern, soft version of that.
1: But but the the soft part really matters, Joe. That was a long disquisition on Hitler for not comparing the president to Hitler and say that that's what the president's doing.
2: Well, it, I, but I think it's, it's we need to be
1: different. really careful about right. about how we have this conversation.
2: But the, it's on the spectrum of of autocratic, authoritarian behavior that this is what they do. They they purge institutions of people who are obstacles to their greater ambitions. You, I can't. I, I don't know any other president who's done anything like what Trump is about to do. It is very—it is abnormal. It is is—it is beyond our previous experiences. Now we're seeing it develop. What we understand now from the reporting that David and, and others are, are doing is that there's a list that has been prepared of people to purge. This has been a plan that's been underway for some some months. So we're just at the beginning of the process. Richard Grinnell in some ways is the, the first application of this, but it's not
0: gonna be the last. You know, I would say, by the way, and I'm very sympathetic to what to what Corey just said that, whereas, you know, there's a red flag that goes up every time there's a comparison made to Hitler because Hitler is kind of a, an example of absolute evil, um, that, you know, the truth ends up being the victim in this and competence ends up being the victim in this, um, in, in the, in the way that those absolutes are under siege, you know, and, 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 and whether you do this as an authoritarian or you do this as a president, if you systematically suppress the truth, if you systematically uh, excise expertise, if you systematically remove potential opposition to you in order to enhance your power to pursue pursuits, which often are pursuits that are, are, are narrowly beneficial to the president or a few supporters, um, then, you know, the consequences are quite similar without without speaking to the analogy, um, and 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 it is fundamentally wrong. It's also, by the way, not an isolated uh, instance. And you know, another thing that happened um, last week, Rosa, uh, and we'll turn to your 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 role as a as a, as a professor of law in this respect is that, Uh-oh. uh oh, well. Uh, That there was a a decision by the Supreme Court uh, in which there was a dissent by Justice Sonia Sotomayor in which she said that um, there was a pattern that was disturbing to her in which the justices, the conservative justices on the Supreme Court were giving the White House uh, essentially a fast track to certain kind of decisions that they were neither entitled to, nor would they have ever gotten in the past, and that there was this kind, she didn't use this word, but she was essentially saying there was this kind of Trumpification of the judiciary. And of course, we're seeing that in a lot of places, and we know that this has been a long-term uh, objective of the right and, and and Mitch McConnell with regard to the appointments of judges. Um, but we've also, of course, seen it in the Um, Department of Justice, where you have an attorney general who is taking unto himself the power to decide things. And it is clear that rather than using the law or the national interest as his guide, he's using um, political objectives in the interests of the president as his guide. And so you're seeing the same kind of thing happen. With regard to the administration of justice and the application of the rule of law within the United States, as you are seeing on the national security side, and again, I think this speaks to the to, to the point that Joe was making. Hitler aside, that this is a, a you know an authoritarian wind and something that should be very disturbing, particularly when you take these kind of events together as as being of a piece, of being a philosophy. Of governance
3: yeah it's it's certainly an authoritarian wind and I think what we don't know yet of course is you know does the wind change direction or not um, do we you know does the house get blown down or not um, and the, the, the I, I, you know I think I think both Corey and Joe are right um, you know on the one hand it's, it is really important to to not lose sight of the fact that you know slaughtering six million people, uh, and starting a world war is on a different level than appointing a bunch of idiots uh, and acting like a jerk um, and having a lot of stupid policies and being venal in minor ways. Um, um, you know that's that's really important. At the same time, it's it's also really important, as, as Joe is suggesting, um, that we not say, well, you know, until six million people are being slaughtered, it's it's, it's you know we don't need to worry about this because. You know, Hitler didn't start off slaughtering six million people. He started off with a series of, of much smaller steps. And the, the challenge, in, you know, the, in all of these situations is, is how do you how do you recognize the moment when the sky really is falling? You know, how do you not be overly alarmist too soon and then people start tuning you out? Um, um, but how do you also not uh, get lulled by, you know, it's just one small thing after another and no individual thing is any more outrageous than the last thing. And then next thing you know, you wake up one day and, you know, you're in a world of total horror. And, and, and are, where are we on, on that? Are we moving in that direction or not? Um, You know, I, I, I I, I do think that we have every reason to be really, really concerned about the direction things are going in the country, um, both in terms of what Trump himself is doing in terms of the national security establishment, the judiciary, but also in terms of the sort of overall mood in the country, increase in hate crimes, uh, uh, increase in media outlets that are acting like uh, they are agents of particular parties or ideologies or individuals—you um, um, know—all sorts of measures suggest that we are moving. You know, we're seeing the sociologists and historians um, and human rights experts who track early warning indicators of atrocities, uh, worldwide would say we're seeing a lot of those early warning indicators here, the stuff that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get to atrocities, but that you tend to see as precursors in societies that do get to those atrocities. And, and, and we have to figure out how to take that really, really seriously. Um, and, you know, I, we, we, It's really hard. It is really hard to know how to respond, because I mean, even when you think about the judiciary, there have been plenty of moments in American history where uh, the judiciary, including the Supreme Court, has pretty much folded and has been a vehicle for political cronyism and so on. This is not completely unprecedented. Um, The question, you know, when when everything ends well, we forget about it and we 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 come up with a sort of tidy story in which everything has always been fine. Um, when you know when things don't end well, we we go oh look that was a red flag we should have paid more attention. Um, so I I don't we're going to find out right that this this next election is going to be the test in many ways. Um, are we able to have a reasonably free and fair election? Uh, are we able to have um, there not have sort of mass scale voter suppression or violence or interference? Uh, in the election itself in twenty twenty, are we able to have a an orderly transition that is peaceful and orderly if there is a change in power? are we if 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 Trump is reelected, do we see him another four years of same, or do we see him dramatically accelerate uh, the sort of quasi-authoritarian things he's doing now? So you know we're gonna find out and 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 it is on all of us to try to do what we can to minimize uh, or prevent uh, the likelihood that things go really, really bad, which could happen.
0: Yeah, it it could. Corey, you may want to pick up on some of this because some of it was in response to what you said. But I would add that, you know, one of the things that we keep hearing from people is, um, well, it all comes down to November. You know, the Congress isn't going to serve as a check. The courts are not serving as a check. It's all going to come down to the Democratic system that we've got in the vote November, but as we watch the primaries unfold, we are reminded that the Democratic system doesn't automatically cough up the ideal candidate to compete with the president. It, the Democratic system is messy, and 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 creates um, questions that that blur the choice. Um and you know the 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 consequences of the, of the 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 approach to government that we're talking about here with regard to the national security community or to the judiciary being re-energized by Trump re-election in November does get us into much darker territory. And so I'm wondering what your thoughts are on that.
1: I do think that uh, the president's reelection will embolden him to an even much greater extent than uh, the Senate not um, censuring or uh, convicting him uh, during the impeachment trial. And I think we're already seeing that, right? A lot of this... Uh, I need the people who are going to carry out my policies uh, that the president's undertaking is, I think, the result of, of both his heightened anxiety about uh, people working against him and his desire to make good on his campaign promises Uh, and I genuinely worry if the current composition of the presidency and the Senate gets ratified during the November elections, that I would be a lot more worried even than I am about democracy in America and certainly a lot more worried about what the United States looks like to the rest of the world. I agree that the Democratic Party in its wisdom is not making this easy on on people to make a choice that repudiates President Trump. Uh, But uh, at the same time, you know, the system produces what it produces for good reasons. Uh, and, And maybe Democrats think that Bernie Sanders is the repudiation of Trump. It'll make it a lot more difficult. It'll make the work of future historians uh, a lot more head-scratching to explain how we got to this moment. But I don't actually lack confidence in the system itself. And I think even if the president is reelected, it will be hard for my fellow Republicans to explain why they're not um, – why they are not acting on the checks and balances that the system provides to constrain the worst impulses and actions of the president's behavior.
0: So, Joe, with regard to that, we are watching Democratic primary unfold. And there is a subtext in the Democratic primary that uh, comes from a lot of people in both parties, which goes, looks like Bernie is leading, Bernie is, you know, the Trump of the left, Mm. Um, Bernie is a populist, and um, we're trading one kind of uh, narcissist for another kind of narcissist. Um, uh, And and frankly, to me, this this rings a little hysterical. Mm -hmm. Corey just brought up something which I think is important and deserves more thought, which is... You know, there are a lot of people showing up to vote, including a lot of young people who may well be thinking, I want to pick the guy who's least like, not just Trump, but least like the establishment that has gotten us to this place. Uh, And of course, you know, the case with regard to Bernie, and I'm not a, a, I've not been a Bernie supporter, but I would, I would vote for him, but I'm not a Bernie supporter. The case with regard to Bernie is if he were in any European political party, He'd be seen as a centrist, <laughs> slightly the right of center. He doesn't advocate a single policy that is that is not under you know, 80 years old at its core, uh, whether it was a Roosevelt policy, a Truman policy, um, or a policy that's been embraced by literally every single one of our allies in Europe, the, the people that we've pledged to fight to support. Um, it, the, the This contrast of you know Bernie as the as the the Trump of the left seems to be a bit over the top to me. what how do you react?
2: I, I completely agree. And just, you know, for purposes of um, complete disclosure, you know, I've worked to advise uh, Senator Sanders in the previous campaign. and And after, I've also worked to advise Senator Warren. Um, but this is completely independent, and as no, I do this on my own time, and not as president of Ploughshares Fund. Um, and so, but I am clearly in the progressive wing of the party. That's what I believe in. I believe we need dramatic, new, different positions. And and so I was encouraged by the results of the Nevada caucus to see that over 50% of the votes went to progressives, either to Bernie or Elizabeth. Some would put Tom Steyer in that category as well, and that would just raise the, the total. And I agree with you. I think that many of the things that these people are advocating are things that Franklin Delano Roosevelt al- uh, advocated, you know, including universal health care or Truman, universal health care, early childhood uh, education. And every time somebody on the Democratic side, well, or even the Republican side argues with things like this, they're always accused of being a socialist. Bernie does embrace it. He's, he's a democratic socialist uh, in the European sense, that he's in favor of large s- social programs. He's in favor of reforming capitalism. Yes, he, that, that's true. That's what he stands for. But, but the thing that encouraged me the most was the kind of voter response he got to this message and looking at the exit polls um, of what people wanted and what they wanted, what they voted for was a candidate who is articulating things that I believe in. What they cared about, Medicare for all, 60% support among the voters, no matter who a candidate they chose, 60% wanted that. A repudiation of college debt, you know. Overwhelming majorities of the voters wanted that. And at some point, if you believe in our system, you have to believe in the real democracy, like looking at what the voters are saying and what they're telling you, whether you personally like this candidate or not. Bernie's got tremendous appeal. He really demonstrated in Nevada that he's capable of building a multiracial, multi ethnic, multi generational coalition. He won all. The demographic groups except <laughs> actually people in my category over 65. He won everybody and even there he, he made inroads. So something is happening here. He's building something. We'll know a lot more in about 10 days but, but I am excited by what I'm seeing that this, this emergence of, of a real organized movement which to my view is the way you take on Trump. You don't, you don't have elect a moderate who's going to sort of appeal to the middle and try to peel off some Trump voters. You've got to go mobilize all those people who have been outside the for most of their lives, the voting apparatus. And so it was very encouraging to see so many new voters show up in Nevada. We'll see if that pattern continues. You just
0: support Bernie because he would make you feel young. By comparison. <laughs> right, I'm used to having presidents older than me. Exactly. I know. I believe me. I, I, I understand that. Um, Rosa, you know, one of the things that strikes me in conclusion here is that while everybody goes, well, yeah, we've got the, 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 the elections in November. You know, this is the final check. Uh, it is actually the final check, right? There are supposed to be other checks. There's supposed to be the Uh, co-equal branches of government check, and that one's gone. There's supposed to be the independent judiciary check, and that one is gone. There's supposed to be the oath of everybody in senior positions in the government to the Constitution, and that one seems to have been compromised. There's supposed to be the fact that a lot of the senior positions in the government are approved by the the Congress, um, uh, which gives them a responsibility to a separate um, branch of the government, and that one, as Corey pointed out, is gone in at least 19 cases. Not to mention all the ones that are unfilled. We're down to our last check, and the the, the way the system is supposed to work, it's not supposed to just depend on this one. Um, and I think that it, you know is, is 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 what makes this seem so um, dangerous. And it seems like these winds of authoritarianism are blowing. Uh, you know, approaching hurricane force, as far as I'm concerned. But, but what 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 do you think about that, Rosa?
3: Well, David, I think as usual you have you have uh, successfully listed uh, a whole series of depressing things. Um, you know, I I do want to chime in in strong agreement with with you and Joe that um, Bernie Sanders is not Donald Trump. Um, uh, Trump is not Hitler and Sanders is not Trump. Um, he is a narcissist, yes. Um, I think that pretty much by definition, those who run for president are narcissists. Um, uh, you know, find me a candidate for president who doesn't have narcissistic qualities, <laughs> um, uh, and I'll find you someone who's only kidding about running for president. Um, um uh, you know he's not my favorite he's not my favorite candidate um but i also actually really am bothered by the degree to which the media is is sort of participating in this oh my god bernie sanders you know he's an extremist he's i, I was really upset this morning to see in a washington post headline describing sanders as edging towards a takeover of the democratic party you know takeover as a is a term that has connotations of um, by trickery or force. Um, and Sanders isn't taking anything over by trickery or force. Um, for better or for worse, he's got a lot, a surprising number of people uh, so far in the three states that have held their primaries uh, have voted for him. Um, that's not called a takeover. That That is called democracy. And, you know, democracy does not always produce results we like. I mean, the you know, the, the caveat, of course, to Joe's uh, noting that we should listen to what the voters are telling us is that sometimes voters tell us stuff that's pretty yucky. Uh, A lot of Trump voters are telling us stuff, too. And some of what they're telling us is is that, you know, there are a lot of racists in America, for instance, not all of them, but some of them, you know. Um, So so I don't see I don't see uh, the voters speaking as any guarantee that what the voters have to say is wise or, or moral, um, um, but, but I do think that in the case of Bernie Sanders, you know, yeah, there are some nasty internet stuff going on from some of his supporters, which I don't like, and I don't think he's done enough to denounce, but he's not; he's no Donald Trump. You know, he is not, by and large, he's not engaging in dirty tricks. He's being the same Bernie Sanders he has been for decades, um, completely unabashedly, and that it turns out is really appealing to a lot of voters whether it will be appealing to enough of them to catapult him over the threshold to become the democratic nominee remains to be seen but but i think that he and all of the americans who are moved by his views should be you know treated as what he is he's a, he's an intellectually and politically serious contender for Democratic nomination, and, and if it's enraging to the media uh, that someone who they previously wrote off is is doing that, that kind of speaks more to their flaws uh, than to the flaws of Bernie Sanders or anybody else. Um, you know, I'm still concerned that he's the least likely of the Democratic candidates to actually win a head-to-head contest against Trump, um, but but I don't see it as somehow a, a bad or unfair thing that he's doing well at the polls. Um, uh that at all, um, I, I I think going back to your your question, David, um, you know, as I said, not not to be overly apocalyptic because things could all turn out fine, and then we'll all look like a bunch of hysterical alarmists. And I'm I'm, I'm actually quite willing to live with with spending the next decade having people tell me I was a hysterical alarmist if everything turns out well. It's um, <laughs> a price I'd be willing to pay. Um, but but yeah, the the election and the transition are kind of the last test. Um, and what lies after that well historically what lies after that is civil conflict and that is definitely not a place that we want to go so I I sure hope that you know I I sure hope that those last remaining vestiges of commitment to the process will hold because I'm you know quite terrified at the possibility that things really would fall apart you know that we'd have a a contested transition one way or the other in, in which we get either side, frankly, you know, calling for potentially violent civil resistance. And I think that that's a real possibility. I don't think it's anything close to a foregone conclusion. Um, you know, I, I think it's still more likely than not that we do kind of get through this somehow or other. We kind of stagger through this peacefully um, with a bunch of scars, but that's it. I, you know, but, I, but I, I think everyone should be plenty afraid it's probably not possible to be too afraid right now.
0: I think uh, you guys have covered this expertly, as you always do. And uh, certainly the issues that have been raised with regard to the national security community and the judiciary um, are, are are things that we need to keep an eye on, even over the course of the next several months, regardless of the consequences of the election. Uh, we'll keep talking about these issues and continue to hope that you will join us back here. Go to the DSR network for more information on what we're doing, the DSRnetwork.com. And we'll be back uh, later this week with another podcast and and look forward to talking to you then. Thanks to Joe. Thanks to Corey. Thanks to Rosa. Bye-bye.